Section 35 of The Ego and His Own This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner My Self-Enjoyment Part 1 we stand at the boundary of a period. The world hitherto took thought for nothing but the gain of life, took care for life. For whether all activity is put on the stretch for the life of this world or of the other, for the temple or for the eternal, whether one hankers for daily bread, give us our daily bread, or for holy bread, the true bread from heaven, the bread of God that comes from heaven and gives life to the world, the bread of life, John 6. Whether one takes care for dear life or for life to eternity, this does not change the object of the strain and care which in the one case as in the other shows itself to be life. Do the modern tendencies announce themselves otherwise? People now want nobody to be embarrassed for the most indispensable necessaries of life, but want every one to feel secure as to these. And on the other hand, they teach that man has this life to attend to, and the real world to adapt himself to, without vain care for another. Let us take up the same thing from another side. When one is anxious only to live, he easily, in this solicitude, forgets the enjoyment of life. If his only concern is for life, and he thinks, if I only have my dear life, he does not apply his full strength to using, i.e. enjoying life. But how does one use life? In using it up like the candle which one uses in burning it up. One uses life and consequently himself the living one in consuming it and himself enjoyment of life is using life up now we are in search of the enjoyment of life and what did the religious world do it went in search of life wherein consists the true life the blessed life etc how is it to be attained what must man do and become in order to become a truly living man? How does he fulfil this calling? These and similar questions indicate that the asters were still seeking for themselves to wit, themselves in the true sense, in the sense of true living. What I am is foam and shadow. What I shall be is my true self. To chase after this self to produce it, to realise it, constitutes the hard task of mortals, who die only to rise again, live only to die, live only to find the true life. Not till I am certain of myself, and no longer seeking for myself, am I really my property. I have myself, therefore, I use and enjoy myself. On the other hand, I can never take comfort in myself as long as I think that I have still to find my true self, and that it must come to this, that not I, but Christ, or some other spiritual, i.e. ghostly self, e.g. the true man, the essence of man, etc., 
lives in me. A vast interval separates the two views. In the old I go toward myself, in the new I start from myself. In the former I long for myself, in the latter I have myself and do with myself as one does with any other property. I enjoy myself at my pleasure. I am no longer afraid for my life, but squander it. Henceforth the question runs, not how one can acquire life, but how one can squander, enjoy it, or not how one is to produce the true self in himself, but how one is to dissolve himself, to live himself out. What else should the ideal be but the sought-for, ever-distant self? One seeks for himself, consequently one does not yet have himself. One aspires toward what one ought to be, consequently one is not it. One lives in longing, and has lived thousands of years in it, in hope. Living is quite another thing, in enjoyment. Does this perchance apply only to the so-called pious? No, it applies to all who belong to the departing period of history, even to its men of pleasure. For them too the work days were followed by a Sunday, and the rush of the world by the dream of a better world, of a general happiness of humanity, in short by an ideal but philosophers especially are contrasted with the pious. Now have they been thinking of anything else than the ideal, been planning for anything else than the absolute self? Longing and hope everywhere, and nothing but these. For me, call it romanticism. If the enjoyment of life is to triumph over the longing for life or hope of life, it must vanquish this in its double significance, which Schiller introduces in his ideal and life. It must crush spiritual and secular poverty, exterminate the ideal and the want of daily bread. He who must expend his life to prolong life cannot enjoy it, and he who is still seeking for his life does not have it and can as little enjoy it. Both are poor, but blessed are the poor. Those who are hungering for the true life have no power over their present life, but must apply it for the purpose of thereby gaining that true life, and must sacrifice it entirely to this aspiration and this task. If in the case of those devotees who hope for a life in the other world and look upon that in this world as merely a preparation for it the tributiness of their earthly existence which they put solely into the service of the hoped-for heavenly existence is pretty distinctly apparent one would yet go far wrong if one wanted to consider the most rationalistic and enlightened as less self-sacrificing Oh, there is to be found in the true life a much more comprehensive significance than the heavenly is content to express. Now is not to introduce the liberal concept of it at once. 
the human and truly human life the true one and is everyone already leading this truly human life from the start or must he first raise himself to it with hard toil does he already have it as his present life or must he struggle for it as his future life which will become his part only when he is no longer tainted with any egoism in this view life exists only to gain life and one lives only to make the essence of man alive in oneself one lives for the sake of this essence one has his life only in order to procure by means of it the true life cleansed of all egoism hence one is afraid to make any use he likes of his life it is to serve only for the right use in short one has a calling in life a task in life one has something to realize and produce by his life a something for which our life is only means and implement a something that is worth more than this life a something to which one owes his life one has a god who asks a living sacrifice only the rudeness of human sacrifice has been lost with time human sacrifice itself has remained unabated and criminals hourly fall sacrifices to justice and we poor sinners slay our own selves as sacrifice for the human essence the idea of mankind humanity and whatever the idols or gods are called besides but because we owe our life to that something therefore this is the next point we have no right to take it from us the conservative tendency of christianity does not permit thinking of death otherwise than with the purpose to take its sting from it and live on preserve oneself nicely the christian lets everything happen and come upon him if he the arch jew can only haggle and smuggle himself into heaven he must not kill himself he must only preserve himself and work at the preparation of a future abode conservatism or conquest of death lies at his heart the last enemy that is abolished is death christ has taken the power from death and brought life and imperishable being to light by the gospel imperishableness stability the moral man wants the good the right and if he takes to the means that lead to this goal really lead to it then these means are not his means but those of the good right etc itself these means are never immoral because the good end itself mediates itself through them the end sanctifies the means they call this maxim jesuitical but it is moral through and through the moral man acts in the surface of an end or an idea he makes himself the tool of the idea of the good as the pious man counts it his glory to be a tool or instrument of god to await death is what the moral commandment postulates as the good to give it to oneself is immoral and bad suicide finds no excuse before the judgment seat of morality if the religious man forbids it because 
you have not given yourself life but god who alone can also take it from you again as if even taking in this conception god did not take it from me just as much when i kill myself as when a tile from the roof or a hostile bullet fails me for he would have aroused the resolution of death in me too the moral man forbids it because i owe my life to the fatherland etc because i do not know whether i may not yet accomplish good by my life of course for in me good loses at all as god does an instrument if i am immoral the good is served in my amendment if i am ungodly god has joy in my penitence suicide therefore is ungodly as well as nephius if one whose standpoint is religiousness takes his own life he acts in forgetfulness of god but if the suicide's standpoint is morality he acts in forgetfulness of duty immorally people worried themselves much with the question whether emma galotti's death can be justified before morality they take it as if it were suicide which it is too in substance that she is so infatuated with chastity this moral good as to yield up even her life for it is certainly moral but again that she fears the weakness of her flesh is immoral footnote see the next to the last scene of the tragedy orado under the pretext of a judicial investigation he tears you out of your arms and takes you to grimaldi amelia give me that dagger father me orado no no reflect you two have only one life to lose amelia and only one innocence orado which is above the reach of any violence amelia but not above the reach of any seduction violence violence who cannot defy violence what is called violence is nothing seduction is the true violence i have blood father blood as youthful and warm as anybody's my senses are senses i can want nothing i am sure of nothing i know grimaldi's house it is the house of pleasure an hour there under my mother's eyes and there arose in my soul so much turmoil as the strictest exercise of religion could hardly quieten weeks religion and what religion to escape nothing worse thousands sprang into the water and are saints give me that dagger father give it to me amelia once indeed there was a father who to save his daughter from shame drove into her heart whatever still he could quickest find gave life to her for the second time but all such deeds are of the past of such fathers there are no more orado yes daughter yes stabs her End of footnote. such contradictions from the tragic conflict universally in the moral drama and one must think and feel morally to be able to take an interest in it what holds good of piety and morality will necessarily apply to humanity also 
because one owes his life likewise to man, mankind, or the species. Only when I am under obligation to no being is the maintaining of my life my affair. A leap from this bridge makes me free. But if we owe the maintaining of our life to that being that we are to make alive in ourselves, it is not less our duty not to lead this life according to our pleasure, but to shape it in conformity to that being. All my feeling, thinking, and willing, all my doing and designing, belongs to him. What is in conformity to that being is to be inferred from his concept, and how differently has this concept been conceived, or how differently has that being been imagined? What demands the supreme being makes on the Mohammedan what different ones the Christian, again, thinks he hears from him? How divergent, therefore, must the shaping of the lives of the two turn out? Only this do all hold fast, that the supreme being is to judge our life. But the pious who have their judge in God, and in his word a book of directions for their life, I everywhere pass by only remintously because they belong to a period of development that has been lived through, and, as petty fractions, they may remain in their fixed place right along. In our time it is no longer the pious, but the liberals who have the floor, and piety itself cannot keep from reddening its pale face with liberal colouring. But the liberals do not adore their judge in God, and do not unfold their life by the directions of the divine word, but regulate themselves by man. They want to be not divine, but human, and to live so. Man is the liberal's supreme being, man the judge of his life. Humanity, his directions, or catechisms. God is spirit, but man is the most perfect spirit. The final result of the long chase after the spirit, or of the searching in the depths of the Godhead, i.e. in the depths of the spirit. Every one of your traits is to be human. You yourself are to be so from top to toe, in the inward as in the outward, for humanity is your calling. Calling, destiny, task. What one can become, he does become. A born poet may well be hindered by the disfavour of circumstances from standing on the high level of his time, and, after the great studies that are indispensable for this, producing consummate works of art, but he will make poetry, be he a plowman or so lucky as to live at the court of Weimar. A born musician will make music, no matter whether on all instruments or only on an oaten pipe. A born philosophical head can give proof of itself as university philosopher, or as village philosopher. Finally, a born dolt, who, as is very well compatible with this, may at the same time be a sly boots, will, as probably everyone who has visited schools in a position to amplify to himself by many instances of fellow scholars, always remain a blockhead. Let him have been drilled and trained into the chief of a bureau, or let him serve that same chief 
as boot-black. Nay, the born shallow pates indisputably form the most numerous class of men, and why, indeed, should not the same distinctions show themselves in the human species that are unmistakable in every species of beast? The more gifted and the less gifted are to be found everywhere. Only a few, however, are so imbecile that one could not get ideas into them. Hence, people usually consider all men capable of having religion. In a certain degree, they may be trained to other ideas too, e.g. to some musical intelligence, even some philosophy. At this point, then, the priesthood of religion, of morality, of culture, of science, etc., takes its start, and the communists, e.g., want to make everything accessible to all by their public school. There is heard a common assertion that this great mass cannot get along without religion. The communists broaden it into the proposition that not only the great mass, but absolutely all, are called to everything. Not enough that the great mass has been trained to religion. Now it is actually to have to occupy itself with everything human. Training is growing ever more general and more comprehensive. You poor beings who could live so happily if you might skip according to your mind, you are to dance to the pipe of schoolmasters and beer leaders, in order to perform tricks that you yourselves would never use yourselves for. And you do not even kick out of the traces at last against being always taken otherwise than you want to give yourselves. No, you mechanically recite to yourselves the question that is recited to you. What am I called to? What ought I to do? You need only ask thus. To have yourselves told what you ought to do and order to do it, to have your calling marked out for you, or else to order yourselves and impose it on yourselves according to the Spirit's prescription. Then, in reference to the will, the word is, I will too do what I ought. A man is called to nothing, and has no calling, no destiny, as little as a plant or a beast has a calling. The flower does not follow the calling to complete itself, but it spends all its forces to enjoy and consume the world as well as it can, i.e. it sucks in as much of the juices of the earth, as much air of the ether, as much light of the sun as it can get and lodge the bird lives up to no calling but it uses its forces as much as it is practicable it catches beetles and sings to its heart's delight but the forces of the flower and the bird are slight in comparison to those of a man and a man who applies his forces will affect the world much more powerfully than flower and beast a calling he has not, but he has forces that manifest themselves where they are because their being consists solely in their manifestation, and are as little able to abide inactive as life, which, if it stood still, only a second would no longer be life. Now one might call out to the man, use your force. Yet to this imperative would be given the meaning that it was man's task to use his force. It is not so. 
Rather, each one really uses his force without first looking upon this as his calling. At all times, everyone uses as much force as he possesses. One does say of a beaten man that he ought to have exerted his force more. But one forgets that, if in the moment of succumbing he had the force to exert his forces, e.g. bodily forces, he would not have failed to do it, even if it was only the discouragement of a minute. This was yet a destitution of force, a minute long. Forces may assuredly be sharpened and redoubled, especially by hostile resistance or friendly assistance, but where one misses their application, one may be sure of their absence too. One can strike fire out of a stone, but without the blow none comes out. In like manner, a man too needs impact. Now, for this reason, that forces always of themselves show themselves operative. The command to use them would be superficious and senseless. To use his forces is not man's calling and task, but is his act real and extant at all times. Force is only a simpler word for manifestation of force. Now, as this rose is a true rose to begin with, this nightingale always a true nightingale, so I am not for the first time a true man when I fulfil my calling, live up to my destiny, but I am a true man from the start. My first babble is the token of the life of a true man. The struggles of my life are the outpourings of his force. My last breath is the last exhalation of the force of the man. The true man does not lie in the future, an object of longing, but lies existent and real in the present. Whatever and whoever I may be, joyous and suffering, a child or a grey-beard, in confidence or doubt, in sleep or in waking, I am it, I am the true man. But if I am man, and have really found in myself him whom religiously humanity designated as the distant goal, then everything truly human is also my own. What was ascribed to the idea of humanity belongs to me, that freedom of trade, e.g. when humanity has yet to attain, and which, like an enchanting dream, people remove to humanity's golden future, I take by anticipation as my property, and carry it on for the time in the form of smuggling. There may indeed be but few smugglers who have sufficient understanding to thus account to themselves for their doings. But the instinct of egoism replaces their consciousness. Above, I have shown the same thing about freedom of the press. Everything is my own. Therefore, I bring back to myself what wants to withdraw from me. But above all, I always bring myself back when I have slipped away from myself to any tributaries. But this too is not my calling, but my natural act. Enough. There is a mighty difference whether I make myself the starting point or the goal. As the latter, I do not have myself, am consequently still alien to myself, and my essence, my true essence, and this true essence 
alien to me, will mock me as a spook of a thousand different names, because I am not yet I, another, like God, the true man, the truly pious man, the rational man, the free man, etc., is I, my ego. Still far from myself, I separate myself into two halves, of which one, the one unattained and to be fulfilled, is the true one. The one, the untrue, must be brought as a sacrifice, to wit, the unspiritual one. The other, the true, is to be the whole man, to wit, the spirit. Then it is said, the spirit is man's proper essence, or man exists as man only spiritually. Now there is a greedy rush to catch the spirit, as if one would then have bowed himself, and so, in chasing after himself, one loses sight of himself, whom he is. And as one stormily pursues his own self, the never attained, so one also despises shrewd people's rules to take men as they are, and prefers to take them as they should be, and for this reason hounds everyone on after his should-be self, and endeavours to make all into equally entitled, equally respectable, equally moral or rational men. Yes, if men were what they should be, could be, if all men were rational, all loved each other as brothers, then it would be a paradisical life. All right, men, are as they should be, can be. What should they be? Surely not more than they can be. And what can they be? Not more again than they can, than they have the competence, the force to be. But this they really are because what they are not they are incapable of being, for to be capable means really to be. One is not capable for anything that one really is not. One is not capable of anything that one does not really do. Could a man blinded by cataracts see? Oh yes, if he had his cataracts successfully removed, but now he cannot see, because he does not see. Possibility and reality always coincide. One can do nothing that one does not, as one does nothing that one cannot. The singularity of this assertion vanishes when one reflects that the words, it is possible that, almost never contain another meaning than, I can imagine that, e.g., it is possible for all men to live rationally, e.g., I can imagine that all, etc., now since my thinking cannot, and accordingly does not, cause all men to live rationally, but this must still be left to the men themselves. General reason is for me only thinkable, a thinkableness, but as such, in fact, a reality that is called a possibility only in reference to what I cannot bring to pass, to wit, the rationality of others so far as depends on you all men might be rational for you have nothing against it nay so far as your thinking reaches you perhaps cannot discover any hindrance either and accordingly nothing does stand in the way of the thing in your thinking and it is thinkable to you as men are not all rational though 
it is probable that they cannot be so if something which one imagines to be easily possible is not or does not happen then one may be assured that something stands in the way of the thing and that it is impossible our time has its art science etc the art may be bad in all conscience but one may say that we deserved to have a better and could have it if we only would we have just as much art as we can have our art of to-day is the only art possible and therefore real at the time end of section thirty five recording by elaine webb bristol england